Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi folks, and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. This show is a Christmas special of sorts for the podcast. I'm sitting here in Hughes' pub in the heart of Dublin. I have a very special guest here with me. We've got a couple of points in front of us, and we're going to chat about one of the most incredible historical locations around Dublin. It's a castle that was for centuries, I guess, I suppose you could say forgotten, but excavations there over the last 15 to 20 years revealed a brutal siege, a massacre, and an incredible insight into an Ireland that's scarcely imaginable today. Now before we get into all that, I just want to give the pub a mention here. So I'm sitting in Hughes's pub, located right beside uh, a setting actually that was mentioned in two recent episodes. So that's the Four Courts, and that's where the Four Courts explosion took place just 50 metres uh, from here. And then Bob Doyle, who was mentioned in Partisans Part 3, was born only 200 metres from here. As this is the last show of 2019, I just want to keep the housekeeping down to an absolute minimum, so I'm just going to ask you for two quick favours. If you haven't subscribed to the Irish History Podcast, please do. It does make a great difference. And secondly, if you could share this episode with a pal you might think uh, would enjoy it and recommend they subscribe to, that would be great. Also, if you want to share and tag me on Twitter, uh, my Twitter handle is Irish History. I'll retweet it. All these small acts really help out with the show. Anyway, that's all the housekeeping done for the year. Now I want to introduce my guest, and that's Mark Clinton, someone I've known for over 15 years. So Mark, do you want to introduce yourself? My name is, as you rightly said, Mark Clinton, Dr. Mark Clinton. As Ned Kelly, uh, formerly of the National Museum, once said to me, now that you have the new fancy title, the only time you're ever going to use it is to annoy people. So uh, let me start <laughs> off by annoying your listeners. <laughs> well, I first met Mark um, on working on the first archaeological excavation that I ever worked on, and that was Carrick Mines Castle. And maybe to set the scene so of Carrick Mines Castle, which we're going to talk about today, uh, some listeners will be familiar from early episodes of the podcast about tensions that would have arose in Ireland after the Norman invasion between the Norman colony maybe centred in and around Dublin and then Gaelic Irish families in the Wicklow Mountains. And to explain to people, Carrick Mines Castle was built essentially on what was a frontier between these two areas. Yeah, I think uh, if, if, if you were sort of designing where to place the capital uh, or principal city of any state, uh, Dublin was in the wrong place. <laughs> because uh, maybe, uh, and especially vis-a-vis the Pale, the English colony, 
uh, Drogheda might have been a bit better because Dublin, if you think about it, and as often it surprises you, you're walking down the street in Dublin and you catch sight of, uh, there's the Wicklow Dublin Mountains. They're actually very close. And if you take it that they were densely forested and uh, there were no roads in there or anything, you had this kind of really wild terrain on your doorstep. So Dublin was in a very vulnerable place. So it was fine when it was uh, on the ascendant. But as um, after the initial uh, incursions, and uh, I mean, things get off to a flying start because one must never forget that, I mean, uh, the uh, Strongbow and his um, and his allies are relatives because a lot of them are... Uh, it's one of the bizarre things I think I addressed it in the opening section in the, the Carrick Mines book. Sorry, just uh, according to their mark, just to let people know, you've written a book on all this, so if you just want to tell people... Uh, yes, it's called Carrick Mines, Castle, Rise and Fall. And it basically is... It's, it's the story of, of the site itself, the monument itself, but it also contextualises everything that's going on. In, it's a contemporary history of the period I would as say, well. Sorry, yes. I, w- I would say to people, really worth checking out. But maybe if you go back then and you're, you're, you're setting the scene great there with after the Norman invasion, you have Strongbow yeah. who is... And, they're, they're, and initially, yeah, you have Strongbow and a lot of the others, like the, the, the antecedents of the, the Barry family, the, and they bring in a lot of Welsh people, etc. as well, like the Sinnets. Um, uh, lots of names that are still very familiar to people today um, Fitzgeralds and all these they are here at, uh, at the request of what would be termed the legitimate king of Leinster, Dermot McMurray and as such uh, things go very well we go on uh, a century or so and things start going sour, Wicklow is now becoming hostile to Dublin and now they realise they've got this fairly serious enemy the, uh, the O'Burns, the O'Tools, on their doorstep. So Carrick Mines, this quiet little valley um, close to the Dublin mountains, is in a, finds itself, as you said, on a front line. So a site that had started off as a little farmstead, really, now starts becoming a fortified site because uh, the quiet life is over and now they're absolutely vulnerable to constant raiding, you know, for cattle, for movable goods, etc. So Carrick Mines suddenly finds itself on the front line. So as you've said there, it becomes a fortified site. And I guess over, we're talking now more, say around the year 1300. The site, I suppose... 13th, 14th century is now, yeah, it's getting hostile. And I guess... If we've talked there about the establishment of the site because of this need for a fortified line, I suppose, if you want, for want of yes. a better term, against um, the Gaelic Irish and the Wicklow Mountains are yes. gaining in strength. I think maybe we might move on to the most interesting chapter in the story or move towards it, which is we're going to race here through now 300 years of history <laughs> over the course of like a minute. But by the 17th century, yeah. that, that site has become a hell of a lot more than maybe the medieval fortified farmstead or it, it's become a very serious military fortification and maybe if you just want to explain a bit about the context of um, the progression of the site I suppose and also Irish politics is becoming a lot more violent as these centuries go on 
Um, it was. It, it, it kind of gradually, uh, it was gradually getting there. I mean, one, uh, before we get on to the very interesting 17th century, uh, one of the most colourful uh, people that ended up as the, the owner of the site was a man called Janico D'Artasso. And uh, there was a great quote from uh, Edmund... Sorry. <laughs> I'm just no. going to cut in there. Now. Yeah, who is this person? That's that's not a name that you expect to no. pop up in Irish history. Exactly, he was from Navarre. Okay, he had arrived with uh, Richard II, uh, who decided to turn up his or the first English monarch since Henry II to turn up. This would be in the the late uh, 1300s. And uh, he granted Carrick Mines to this fellow who was kind of an adventurer who had he'd fought, he'd been involved in sieges in Tunisia, wars against the Scots. He was uh, fighting alongside the Teutonic Knights in Prussia and he suddenly finds himself the owner of, of, of Carrick Mines. And um, Edmund Curtis, the great uh, historian, described Janico uh, d'Artasso as a gallant personage who rides across the stage in all the valour, gaiety and colour of late medieval Europe. And he has quite an adventurous life. He's, he writes to the, uh, a former patron, his, an English bishop, uh, to say, I've been granted this great chunk of land because Carrick Mines wasn't his only grant. He got lots of other castles and things. He said, if only this was in central London, it would be <laughs> worth a fortune. This man obviously was thinking ahead, he'd, uh, thinking he could have been the, the Duke of Westminster of his day. But no, he's on the border with the, with the wild O'Burns and O'Tools who are determined to drive him out. As you say, it's, uh, the, the conflict is getting hotter as it goes along. Um, the Earl of Southampton turns up in uh, in, in 1599, and he would be um, his one of his claims to fame was that he was a patron of William Shakespeare, and indeed uh, the 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 two of Shakespeare's works. There's a Venus and Adonis written in 1593, and the Rape of Lou. Lucretia in 1594. These are both dedicated to uh, Henry, Earl of Southampton. And there has been, now I'm not a a sort of a literary scholar or a Shakespearean scholar, but it has been suggested that they were very good friends or uh, the dedication is from um, Shakespeare to uh, Henry is the love I dedicate to your lordship is without end. So uh, there we, the Earl turns up, he's there with a troop of horse at Carrick Mines, again, because trouble is a brewn in the mountains. And maybe just to, to set a scene, maybe some of the politics that we're familiar with in terms of people talk about English invasions, like as you say at the very start, in terms of the Norman invasion, that's a very, very different kettle of fish. But by the sick by, say, the year 1600, you have a much more centralised government in London that's starting to look at Ireland in terms of maybe colonialism in ways that are more reflective of how we would understand Irish history or how or how Irish history is uh, understood today. Um, and I think just the reason I'm bringing this up is that the level of conflict is intensifying, certainly in Ireland. I guess I'm thinking in, in, the, in the context of uh, the plantations that had already gotten underway in Leash and Offaly, um, and I guess politics is, or warfare is becoming much more, uh, um, politics I suppose, is becoming much more um, 
violent and I guess I, I suppose this is more of a question I'm actually saying it as if I'm, a, I'm an expert on this but I'm, I'm actually asking you here. oh really I, I, I was just sitting back enjoying this oh right okay um, I'm, I, I'm asking you but I, I, I suppose it is just to, to, to give people a sense though that this landscape and the people living in places like Carrick Mines are living through a pretty extreme time in Irish history um I just mentioned uh, when the Earl of uh, Southampton was there, and that would have been in the context of the Nine Years' War. But when that comes to an end with the defeat of uh, O'Neill and O'Donnell and all the rest of it, in the very early uh, 1600s, bizarrely at that point, a relative peace descends on the land, because I think the... uh, Ulster has now been uh, fairly well uh, come out badly out of this uh, I mean, it's a kind of a uh, it's almost like a, a, a sort of a ta- peace descends on the land for the early part of the 1600s um, you see Ireland is complicated because you've almost like you've three players as, as we're getting into the 1600s now We've got three camps. We've got the New English, we've got the Old English, and we've got the Gaelic Irish. And just to explain this to you, this really complicates yeah. things. When we talk about New English, we are talking about settlers coming in from England, yeah. or not, not, most of them are actually coming from England. Yeah. But that these people are relatively new to Ireland, and they do have a very different outlook on Ireland as a and this country. Is, and what really, really creates the whole new dimension is that nearly all of these new arrivals when once we're entering the 1600s are Protestant and Gaelic Ireland remains Catholic uh, English, Old English Ireland mostly remains Catholic These three camps that we're talking about the um, Old English the Gaelic Irish Yes and now this new wave of settlers from yes. England. Yes. The tensions between these three groups of people pretty much explodes in the 17th century In that has huge implications for life in Carrick Mines. They're not just in Carrick Mines. Pretty much every single town and village in Ireland is on some level at some point affected by this. But these tensions, they're not the only reason, but contribute to a series of wars in Ireland that... You know, it has been argued one of the most serious events in Irish history in terms of changing the nature of life on the island. Well, it did, because um, England uh, the, the, England couldn't quite accept the fact that you could be a Catholic and a, and a loyal subject. Whereas the old English in Ireland maintained, yes, you could. I'm a Catholic by religion, but I am totally loyal to the English throne. And in many ways, they had to be. Like they, they, it was just the way they had been brought up forever and they're intermarrying, as I said, one other. They feel like they're a... You know, it's, it's kind of... It's, it's, in a way, it's quite... When you look at Northern Ireland today, it's quite a parallel in so much as the unionists of Northern Ireland today they're clearly born, raised, live in Ireland. They can't all leave Ireland in the morning and go back to England. So, but they feel British. So they're in that kind of conundrum. It's the same with the old English. Like, we're loyal to the, the English monarch, but we happen to be Catholics. 
London had a problem with this. And, but you can understand why London had a problem, because nearly everybody who threatened them, uh, be it the, 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 the Spanish or the French, they're all Catholic nations. And they're obviously worried that somehow Catholics yeah. in Ireland, even if they profess complete loyalty, yes. are at some point going to flip on this issue of religion and potentially support yes. a Spanish invasion, which is already... like yep. a, You've had the, Spani- or the Spanish Armada by this yeah, point. Yeah, and we've had Kinsale and all the rest exactly. of it. Even in yeah. Ireland, you've had yeah. a, a potential invasion. Yeah, so... Um, yes. So we've got this, I guess... <laughs> I'm trying to build us up to the year 1642 okay. <laughs> because, folks, 1642 has a fascinating yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. What happens is there's various political attempts to try and resolve all of this, but this is where events in England start overtaking events in Ireland. We're sliding now towards civil war in England, Parliament versus King. And the Gaelic-Irish in late 1641 go into rebellion. Now, normally what would happen is that Westminster would dispatch an army to Ireland and to deal with this insurgency in Ulster. But Westminster can't do anything because you've got the King and Parliament and both of them are looking at one another and sort of saying, well, wait a minute, they're also worried about how is Ireland going to play out when this civil war, they now know they're heading, they're sliding towards civil war in, in England. How is Ireland going to play in all of this? Whose side are they going to be on? The old English, the old Irish, you know, they're, they're, how is Scotland going to come? Everything is in the turmoil. A, a basic stupor so that when this rebellion breaks out, no army arrives from England. Because Parliament won't let the King send one in case this would be turning into something that might outmanoeuvre them. And Parliament won't. So nothing happens. So Ulster, the rebellion happens. And then it starts spilling into Leinster. They take Dundalk. They take, they're uh, outside Drogheda. They're moving south. Then Wicklow, Wexford, the Overlands, starts rising. The old English are now suddenly in an absolute bind. They have desperately tried to play politics throughout the 1600s, various parliaments. It's not really gotten them anywhere. And they have a choice. Certainly if you take County Loud, for example, if you've got a Gaelic army for Ulster marching in and Dublin, London, is not coming to your aid, well, you've to quickly decide... What you're going to do? Like yes. You, like, yeah. There's a number of meetings held, one near Bellis Town, one the Hill of Tar. The old English go for it. They pitch in. They join so the Gaelic Irish. They, they, they join in. And like, yes. Putting this up, While professing loyalty to the king. But explain to people at home, like, this is like, you're talking about, in terms of the population of Ireland now, you're talking about a lot of the overall population arising in revolt by this point. We're now talking uh, practically... The, yeah, we're talking like 95% is now up and running in and this rebellion. The, uh, uh, Dublin at this point is being administered by two Lord Justices, uh, William uh, Parsons and uh, uh, Borlais. Parsons is the main man. They're kind of near, they're they're very puritanical, very parliamentarian, um, uh, and uh, as such, they don't trust the uh, the old English at all, and they 
basically it's a siege. They said they're just holding Dublin and they're praying for a parliamentarian army to arrive from England. And uh, it finally, some, a very small, as opposed to 10 or 20,000 troops arriving, which would have been the normal course, uh, had there not been this mad stalemate uh, in a standoff in England. Uh, 1,100 troops arrive on, uh, at the very end of December uh, in 1641, led by Sir Simon Harcourt. And now we have... He is a very highly respected uh, officer. He's been, since the age of 16, uh, serving in Holland uh, in the Dutch army. Harcourt would appear to have set out with some cavalry in uh, in March of 1642 and it would appear they encountered some of the insurgent uh, cavalry en route bit of an exchange forever they pursue them they take refuge in Carrickmines Castle so when you say they the insurgents okay so Harcourt has chased these people yeah it's to kind of a, seems to be all very casual very uh, nondescript uh, inconsequential just kind of casual like accidental meeting whatever um, now Theobald Walsh who was the owner of Carrick Mines who had some uh, soldiering experience on the continent in the um, what you didn't allow me to go into 30 years for <laughs> uh, while fighting for the Habsburgs. He's an, he's an experienced soldier. Now, he had previous to this brought up a cannon from uh, a relation of his from, uh, from um, Bullock Harbour, Bullock Castle. But after Kilgobbin Castle is taken uh, in a day's fighting and uh, Dundrum Castle is just occupied... I think uh, what I do know is for Theobald sends this cannon back to Bullock. Now, if he had been planning to defend his castle, the last thing a professional soldier would do is dispose of his best piece of ordnance, i.e. his only cannon. So, the indications are Theobald didn't want to defend his castle. He had realised this was inviting disaster. Yep. Uh, Kilsallahan Castle in North County Dublin had already been taken and that was his, where his wife had come from uh, so he, he's, he's reading the land and then there's the Battle of Dean Grange that I mentioned uh, where again the, the, uh, uh, the insurgent force is defeated by the Dublin forces I think Theobald had decided no, this is mad whenever they do turn up and they will I'll just surrender it to them yeah. but he's not at home that day these people, unnamed, whoever they are, encounter Harcourt. Harcourt pursues them. They arrive at Carrick Mines. They take, the insurgents take refuge within. Now, this is where it becomes subject to interpretation, is that it is said they made gestures. They, whatever they did, they really pissed off Harcourt. Outside the castle now. Yes. They're, ta- they're taunting him or whatever. They're taunting him and they're making gestures and it's even if uh, the, uh, if uh, if you're, you're um, 
listeners would like to look into it, you can see that actually some of the hand gestures, uh, rude ver- variety that are known to us, some of them actually have great antiquity, which, <laughs> which came as news to me. And I would refer people to the, the middle digit, look at its history. Let's say it was not unknown to the Romans. But whatever, whatever gestures and calls were made to Harcourt, he only has some a small detachment of cavalry. He's already discovered uh, when they're fighting outside Kilsallan, which initially they can't take us, no heavy guns. And with heavy guns, you need support and infantry. Yeah. He's got none of this. Yeah. Now, why doesn't he just say, right, uh, in the best Arnie tradition, say, I'll be back. <laughs> why doesn't he head back to Dublin, Dublin and come back? back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he doesn't. He gets off his horse. And with his detachment of cavalry are staying there. I can only interpret this as like he was determined that the people who had insulted him would be, they'd be gone. Oh, that he's going to make sure no one gets away. He's making sure they're going nowhere. Okay. And eventually, 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 all the, he has all the stuff he needs. And they attack. So when you say, just to give people a sense here. Yeah. They're attacking the castle. Like, what do they have? Like, do they have cannons? Do they have. He has to, and this is why there's a, a whole delay. And they've now gone into that was a Saturday. They've now gone into Sunday, and Harcourt, as we know, is he's a, he's a, he's very uh, he's very uh, religious in a, a very. Um, or so they won't attack on a Sunday. He doesn't like fighting on a Sunday. Okay. But now he has to because he has to. So he waits. He has to wait for his heavy artillery to arrive. He has to wait to, for infantry to arrive. So it takes all this 24 hours. Like uh, this, he's now it's 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 in military terms. This is now all ridiculous. He yeah. could have just ridden back to Dublin, organized a force, and turned up a week later if he was if his objective was to take the castle. My argument would be, and as I said, I. I I can't go into all the all the reasons are in the book. It's like I, I think it's like he, he is more determined to get the people who have insulted him as opposed to the people who are occupying the castle because mm. the castle ain't going anywhere. Yeah. Instead, he has to wait uh, overnight. They're probably they have probably have no tents or anything yeah, with yeah, them. This yeah. is all. You do not launch an attack on a castle with a, a small detachment of cavalry. Yeah. And he knows that. He has been soldiering since the age of 16. He's now in the sleigh. He's nearly 40. So they haul out heavy guns. They have to wait for the heavy guns to come and they have to be hauled by oxen or horse or whatever on lousy roads. And just to let people know, mines is about like 10, 12 miles, is it? Yeah. Like yeah. You're, not, you're not doing this, and my point is, you're not doing this in, in an hour. No, like, no, 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 no. This is all, this is really not a way for uh, to go about siege. So okay. I think the whole thing is a bloody. Theobald Walsh had no intention of defending it, Harcourt had no intention of attacking it, and yet we're in this bloody so situation. You have this situation. They yeah. brought out the cannon. You have all these people in the castle. They've surrounded it. Yes. And now they're preparing to attack it. Yes. At right at this point, what follows next is a massacre, an archaeological excavation. But mm. we're going to stop right now. Me and Mark have empty glasses. We're going to get. Good God, well observed, sir. We're going to get uh, drinks in and we're going to pick the story up after this. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. Okay, folks, uh, me and Mark are back now, and we've got our drinks, and we're ready to go. It's actually five pints later. (laughs) We left it just as an attack is about to begin. Mark, take it away. Yeah, the thing about Harcourt now, because he's been, he's, he's he's a general that leads from the front. Indeed, it's amazing he's still alive, because even if you go back to his early career in Holland... In in sixteen twenty eight, during the siege of a uh, town in Holland that's now called uh, Den Bosch or Her- Hertogen Bosch, to give her his full title, and that uh, it was recorded at the time that he he was five times thrust and shot through his clothes, and then uh, sixteen thirty two he was he got a bullet through the mouth through his cheeks by the pallet of his mouth. Uh, while meanwhile a, 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 a crude grenade or grenade I think has exploded cutting him badly in the thigh it's amazing this man is still alive because he he leads from the front and sure enough at Carrick Mines the two heavy guns arrive from Dublin Harcourt goes forward with them they ha- they're getting them into a prime position to fire on the, on the castle Harcourt steps out and a sniper from the castle hits him with a shot in the in the uh, in the right 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 uh, chest. 
he's badly wounded clearly he has to be helped from from into into a nearby cabin and he's in a bad way and they start moving him back towards Dublin so he's out of the picture he's, not he's gonna... out of the picture okay. but his men his officers and also as re- research when working for the Carrickmines book uh, I discovered that amongst the officer corps is his brother-in-law his cousin and some people he's been soldiering with since Holland these are friends these are relatives so it becomes a highly personal they're not happy with this at all yeah. they know he's in a very bad way and like just to point out to people if he's been shot in the chest he's gone back into Dublin you're probably thinking that guy's not going to make it they're, yes that's they're pretty much they can see it he's badly he's, he can barely talk he's mumbling about like look after my wife and children and all the rest of it and he's taken away they one of the last orders he gives is maybe go for the gate they charge forward with axes and things they hack down the gate they break into the courtyard and then there's a bit more exchange and then they're into the main building the castle surrenders because it's clear now they're within the main building they can expect that there's it's just standard for the time that certainly the military defenders of it are going to be executed okay uh, but that's probably as far as obviously this is all happening very fast but what they don't know is that Harcourt has been mortally wounded okay so that they don't realise how personalised this whole event has become yeah they don't realise that these people are in are in now in a serious seriously negative frame of mind and it would appear that basically what happens next is that they kill Everybody, men, women, children, that are in the castle, either actively defending it, possibly members of the household. We do know because we uncovered two mass burials, and they were uh, basically thrown head to toe. Just there, there, these are massacre pits, you yeah. know, where there, there's no question of formal burial here. These are just bodies dumped into a shallow hole in the ground. Uh, we know they're in a bad way because uh, Linda Fibiger, doc- Dr. Linda Fibiger, who uh, was our uh, specialist who analysed the bones, most of them had been uh, hack- hit by sword uh, sword cuts or bludgeoned from behind. So they're being chased around the place. Basically, people are running willy-nilly all around the building around the earth with people pursuing them and cutting them down from behind. And uh, we, the fact that we discovered a number of coins, uh, shillings, sixpences, and that in one of these graves is that it shows that these people were because it was a fairly normal thing at the time that corpses would be stripped and searched yeah, for, yeah, for yeah. any goods, jewelry, or whatever. Uh, it's clearly that these people weren't, and I think as uh, uh, Linda put it like that the, the, the clothes were probably in a very bloody state and all the rest of this so just grabbed them threw them into burial pits and then they blow up parts of the castle and uh, they are the, the fortified dwelling and that's why that's the starting point as to why there wasn't much left for us to see when we arrived there to excavate it and then over the subsequent years the remainder of it is demolished stones probably used for different houses used, yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. and so it all ends very suddenly, a site that has been going since 
the 12th century or ever because we d- we discovered evidence during the excavations for an early horizontal mill dating to say the the early 1100s like that's pre Norman arrival or anything. So yeah. there's continuous life there. Continuous life has been there for centuries and centuries, and on that Sunday morning in March 1642, it all ends up in this unbelievably bloody melee. Basically, and life at the castle, as it was known, ends. 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 Just maybe to bring then the story. There's one thing I, I want to talk with Mark. Uh, just before we finish and to bring the story full circle we started out at the start of today's show talking about a Norman invasion how Carrick Mines have become this frontier uh, uh, post outpost I suppose um, a very important part in terms uh, sorry a very important place in terms of chronicle, chronicling Irish life between 1200 and 1600 in terms of understanding a lot of the things that Mark has talked about Um that was recovered then in the 2000s in, in an archaeological excavation. Um, it, there was a huge amount of information that was retrieved from the site, but the actual landscape, as Mark has touched on there, actually was very important in terms of understanding what we've talked about. Sadly today, you can't actually access this. Huge amounts of that site has been completely destroyed um, because this motorway runs through it. Um, now, Mark has published a book, and I guess that's now become, I guess, the, the, the surviving testimony to all this but just a couple of days before uh, we've recorded this interview Mark published an article in the Irish Times where he talked not just about like it was far greater than what we're talking about today the just what's going on in Ireland today in terms of the loss of archaeological sites the what this means for this country going forward just want to say a few words on that yeah, I think it's uh, there's a dreadful expression um, that has been uh, coined by um, officialdom, and it's uh, and I love the use of the word, the misuse of the word, preservation. Great start, preservation by record. What this means, in effect, is our, our alternative uh, title for this is destruction by documentation. So basically, once you excavate a site. Uh, it's whacked, it's gone, it's obliterated. As opposed to in previous years where if a site of importance was discovered, and I'm not talking about, look, there's thousands and thousands of archaeological sites, and with respect, once they're properly excavated, that's it, that's fine. A report is all you need. But there has to be a balance. How can there be thousands upon thousands of sites excavated, and yet where are the new monuments? And after all, we want monuments for people to visit. Uh, and heaven knows the Irish state trades off it furiously with their Ireland's ancient east and all the rest of it. But we need new tourist attractions. We need new standing monuments. But I think um, even if, just even to, to, to highlight this, as someone who worked on that excavation, and I've worked on a fair few excavations, that one in particular stood out because there was a story that you could tell, a very crucial part, like what we've talked about today, in that physical landscape. It's not just that it in itself was... Like, it, it reflected much more than just... Like, history kind of concentrated oh yeah, well, pe- people, on that landscape. Yeah, people should remember, like... And, I mean, there's often, like, when people hear the expression national monument, there's actually five criteria 
by which a site qualifies as a national museum and define alphabetical order, historical comes first. So an archaeological purist would be saying, oh, but there's no Trim Castle there. It's not Trim Castle, it's not Carrickfergus Castle and all the rest of it. But, you know, I mean, if you're to say, why don't we demolish that sort of nondescript little cottage in Connemara, and you go, oh, wait a minute, that was Parrick Pierce's cottage. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or that little council uh, house outside Slane. Oh, wait a minute, that's uh, Francis Ledridge's, or, or down in Dungastown, uh, Asher's only in a run-of-the-mill farmhouse. Oh, wait, that's the John Fitzgerald Kennedy, that's the Kennedy home set. I mean, it's the historical connection yes, that makes these It doesn't have places. to be Trim Castle to be an no. important castle site. I think as well, though, like, as well, like something that I would talk a, a bit about on the podcast is that, like, the history of ordinary people is not recorded in a place like Trim Castle. It's, it's recorded in, like, say, for example, maybe a classic example is Tenements in Dublin. Yeah, well, yes. Like, it's, a lot of those places might not be worth but there's a story and a history. It's the story, the story and the association. Yes, it's exactly. Brick yeah. and mortar. Yeah. So I mean, if, if humans if, have infused something else into us, yeah. Exactly. It's it's and, uh, as I have hoped to uh, that I've got across today is that this is this is why we got so wrapped up in it. It's because it suddenly started. The more we got to know all these people, and people is the key word, men and women and children, and started learning their names. Is that that's why we became so attached to it? That's why we got involved in three high court, three Supreme Court cases, as and with the invaluable uh, Dominic Dunn, Gordon Lucas, uh, you know, Professor Sean Duffy, uh, Dr. David Edwards, is this uh, Eamon P. Kelly National Museum? This why we all became is because the more we got to know about, the more passionate we became about, and God forbid that we should ever reach the point. Uh, as academics, that we're just that it's all just bricks and mortar, preservation by record, as Waddell emeritus professor Galway said, you could argue that the dodo duck has been preserved by taxidermy. <laughs> and with that comment from Mark, I think it's a fitting point to end today's show. That's the podcast finished for 2019. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in throughout the year. All I want to say now is thanks to Mark for his time for this interview today. I'll be back in 2020 when we're going to pick up the series Partisans. I hope you all have a lovely Christmas and a happy new year. I'll be talking to you in 2020. Until then, Sloan.